This is Who We Are, a podcast by Ben & Jerry's and produced by Vox Creative. I'm Carvel Wallace. I saw a gun for the first time in my life because after we moved into that house, there was a period of time where my father, late in the evening, every night would sit in a lawn chair in our carport with a shotgun across his lap. And he was making it very clear to anybody that wanted to intimidate us out of the neighborhood that there was going to be a price to be paid if, if that was what somebody wanted to try and do. And so I remember thinking, why are people so upset? It seems really stupid. Before Jeffrey Robinson was one of the ACLU's deputy legal directors, he was a young boy in Memphis, Tennessee, confused as to why police officers had to help his family move into an all-white neighborhood in 1969, and why his dad stood guard every single night. In this episode... We're going to go back to that driveway where Jeffrey's dad sat, armed and ready to protect his home and his family. We're going to explore how throughout history, Black Americans have been routinely and systemically denied the ability to accumulate wealth, to own and maintain homes, to bank freely, and to build an economic future for our families. When I grew up, my living situation was mostly unstable. Me and my mom moved from apartment to apartment. Sometimes there were nights where we had nowhere to go. The thought of buying a home, owning something on this land was just unimaginable to me. I thought only rich people owned houses. Only rich people could be certain where they were going to sleep once the night came. Now I'm an adult and I live in the Bay Area, one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. My home, my kid's home is Oakland home of the Black Panthers, a historically radical and Black city that over the past decade has seen major changes. Money and investment has been coming into this city in the shape of high-rises and luxury apartments, and more and more white tech workers are living side-by-side side with longtime Black residents. Things are changing rapidly, and the way Oakland looks is changing too. In 1980, the city was nearly half Black, 47% to be exact. But by 2019, Oakland was less than one quarter black. We are taught to think of history as a progressive narrative, that things get better with each passing decade. But when it comes to the value of black property, black spaces, and black people's ability to get ahead in capitalism, the battles that we have been fighting for a century and a half are still very much present. The story of Oakland's changing demographics of Jeffrey's carport in 1969, in a lot of ways, goes all the way back to the 1800s, when newly freed black men entered the American marketplace at a distinct disadvantage. We are told that capitalism is neutral and that there are no handouts, but history tells us a much different story. 
There are no markets. There's no economy outside of politics. The promise was if a black man, this is quoting Booker T. Washington, if a black man has a mortgage on a white man's house, he is bound to get respect and eventually will get political rights as well for having this economic power. But what actually happened in time uh, historically is that when a black man owned a mortgage on a white man's property or when black communities were successful, the white mobs formed and they came with torches and bombs and guns and took it away. And that is the structure of political power. And the law did not protect black property owners from that vigilante violence. That's Mersa Baradaran, law professor and associate dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion at University of California, Irvine Law School, and the author of The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap. The white vigilante violence she speaks of is exactly the reason Jeffrey's dad stood watch with a shotgun. She's been thinking deeply about the origins of black banks and the ongoing racial wealth gap. When we hear things like the average net worth of a typical white family was nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family in 2016, Professor Baradaran wants us to know exactly what that means. So wealth is a much greater indicator of well-being than is income or any other thing. Because income can change in one lifetime within, you know, several different generations. But wealth is the buffer against the hard edges of life. One, it is also, um, it means a lot more than just money in a bank account. So wealth is measured by how much are your assets minus your liabilities. And your assets is your home usually. So for 60% of Americans, their main asset is their home. Liabilities are the loans you have out. So wealth is very much the place where racism and racial hierarchy and white supremacy are coded. And it is done essentially through property values and through neighborhood zoning and the way that we kind of divide up opportunity based on zip codes at this point. Mm. And when we hear about this disparity, it's part of the American psychology, I would argue, uh, and part of the way white supremacy functions in our minds, is that people want to walk away from that going that there's something about individuals, that there's a way mm -hmm. to place that blame on individuals, that I have worked really hard and my family worked hard and my ancestors worked hard and that's why we have this and other people have been lazy and they haven't done this. But you argue in your book, The Color of Money, that this wealth gap was purposefully produced and enforced. And in order to understand that, you have to challenge the myths that we currently do tell ourselves about the free market and the agency of community. What are those myths? One myth is that we have ever lived in capitalism, that the market is free in any sense of the word. Whether you're Adam Smith capitalist or Karl Marx anti-capitalist, the premise of capitalism is that just money speaks and it's just the market and the free market determines one's value. Now that has never been true in America. It has always been the case that white policyholders and white legislatures have given land to white folks and deprived it from black folks. It's always been the, the case that black property owners were the targets of domestic terrorism through white mobs. You know, we're talking about Tulsa, we're talking about individual white vigilantes across the country and the law not protecting that property. So one is the myth of capitalism. Second is the myth of, you know, self-reliance and, you know, individual autonomy and entrepreneurialism. And that is just so embedded in the American mythology. And it is a mythology. The majority of, well, 
wealth built in America for the vast majority of people is either generational, so you inherit it, or it is through your income and your prospects, through your home, your home values rising. So in America, from the beginning until today, homes don't rise in value in black neighborhoods, and they don't rise in value for being in black neighborhoods. That coding of race is very much integral to the way that we value property. So that's too, is a lack of entrepreneurial or hard work or decision-making has caused the racial wealth gap. And those who keep talking about that as a cultural issue or a personal decision-making issue are either misunderstanding or cynically reinforcing white supremacy. Well, it also ties, too, to this idea that somehow the only color we can all agree on is green, that like Mm -hmm. the idea that capitalism and that capital exists outside of the political sphere. I am fascinated whenever I hear someone make this argument. But what we know from our history is that the distribution of capital not only happens along white supremacist lines, but it also happens through the enforcement of policies and politics that themselves are influenced by or structured to promote and create oppression of non-white people. I want to dig into that because I also find myself increasingly fascinated with the mechanisms of reconstruction. You see the first opportunity of formerly enslaved people to gain equal rights. And right away, people start to see the attainment of land as crucial to economic and maybe even spiritual liberation. It strikes me as uh, this thing happening on two fronts. You have this creation of Slavery is over unless you get convicted of a crime. And then we have all this Mm -hmm. free labor. Well, that worked out nicely on the one hand. And then on the other hand, for people who somehow managed to escape that trap and who are able to build wealth, like we saw in Elaine, Arkansas, like we saw in Tulsa, Oklahoma, then the resistance comes in the form of sudden and brutal violence. Can you talk a little bit about, about that method by which black wealth is systemically destroyed? Yeah. So there's the legal mechanism, right? So you do have judges and legislators and, you know, the white collar, the the respectable classes making the laws and determining the court cases where these things are happening. So there was a famous or infamous Supreme Court case in the 1870s where black men uh, are using the 14th Amendment to ask for protection from the law, from like the the lack of due process in the South. This is a few years after emancipation where you have lynch mobs depriving black men all the time of their rights without any due process. So the 14th Mm. Amendment is actually rendered ineffectual against black claims for justice. And it is used in the next century until today more from corporations asking for help against states than it is black men and women protecting themselves. So that's the respectable side of the economy. And then there's the mobs and the violence, which Mm. obviously there's not coordination, but certainly a synergy. And the mob violence is when the law doesn't work. So there's bombs and weapons that were kind of military grade for the time to run out the black businessmen in Tulsa. So that was a wider scale sort of act of terrorism. But there were also smaller scale acts of terrorism across the country. So look, if you move into our neighborhood, you're going to risk your life. And this is, this is the way that you communicate that. Tulsa, every black businessman, banker that I studied after Tulsa riots, and, and there were not, it wasn't just Tulsa, by the way, there was, there was others as well, 
had this fear of not pissing off the structures of power lest they be the victim of this paramilitary violence. That is the point of terrorism, and it was effective. It was so effective, in fact, that the violence continued through the turn of the century, running like a rod of lightning throughout our history, ready to ignite into flames the moment Black Americans dared ask for more or claim our share of the pie. You probably didn't learn the full extent of this violence in school. It was only recently that more and more people began to learn about the Tulsa Massacre of 1921 that saw the destruction of what was known then as Black Wall Street, an economic center of Black prosperity. But there was another. Two years prior, just as violent, just as egregious. And most Americans still have never heard of it. The Elaine Massacre of 1919. It's late September in Elaine, Arkansas. The year is 1919. A group of African-American tenant farmers have decided they've had enough. It's the end of yet another long season. Their hands are still sore from harvesting the cotton they've grown on the land that's theirs, but not really theirs. Soon the white landlords will come into town claiming that the price of cotton has gone down, that the rent has gone up. Come the end of summer, there's never a bounty to celebrate. Instead, there's always a debt. It doesn't feel much different than the years before, before this supposed freedom. Enough. This year will be different. The sharecroppers enlist help from a white lawyer who seems to think they have a case that they can ask for a better share of the profits. They can ask for more. They meet at a church that night, knowing it's worth the risk. Yeah, this time will be different. It's why they've come from across the county to this church here in Elaine. The air is full of promise. That night, a group of white men, neighbors with some ties to local law enforcement, unhappy with what the black farmers are doing, come armed to the church. Bullets begin flying. The black farmers are armed too. They fire back. When the sun rises that morning, a white man lays dead. The governor knows this single white death can't stand. He knows that a group of black men asking for more is a full-on insurrection on the political and economic system he's sworn to protect. So he sends in troops. 500 trained soldiers. The order is, shoot any African-Americans who resist surrender. Resist surrender. Dare to ask for more. It's all the same to them. The next few days and nights, all you hear is crying and screams. It's a massacre. At least 200 men, women, and children are killed. The air is acrid, oppressive, and thick. Blood thick and red like that past summer. The red-hot summer of 1919. A silencing of an entire generation simply for asking for their fair share. Some 95 miles north of Elaine, in Memphis, Tennessee, the year is 1969. 
A man sits in his carport, shotgun in hand, waiting for some neighbors, angry at him for asking for more. I think my father was one of the most brilliant activists that I have ever seen in my life. And he did it not to accomplish the goal of racial justice. He did it because he wanted his kids in a Catholic school and he was pissed off that people were telling him that he couldn't live where he wanted to live. How does your family even get to buy that house? Like, how do you even come to be in that neighborhood? With my older brother, my younger brother, and one of my younger sisters, lived in uh, a home in a black neighborhood in Memphis, in East Memphis. And anyone that knows Memphis knows that the city starts on the Mississippi River and then goes east from there. So as you go east from the river, Memphis kind of gets newer and newer and newer. And there were a number of homes that I recently found out were actually built for black educators. And we were in one of those homes because my father was a principal, first at grade schools and then at high schools. In 1969, after King was killed, uh, a developer started buying up these black homes. And if you go to 5038 William Arnold Road, which is where I grew up, there's a huge shopping center there right now. And the man developing that shopping center uh, was buying up all the houses in our neighborhood, and my father refused to sell. And I can distinctly remember our house as, you know, the other houses were being torn down. And my parents were converted Catholics. They had put us into a Catholic school in 1963. And my parents wanted us to stay in that school, and they wanted to be close to the school. And uh, just to be blunt, he was pissed off that anybody would try and tell him where he could live. So we started looking for houses, and the deal we had with the developer was, you're going to buy the house we want, and you can have our house. So every house we looked at, we offered the asking price. And there was a Jewish family that my parents were friends with, their mother was a realtor, and she would show my parents around in Memphis in these neighborhoods looking at houses, and she got hate mail and hate calls saying, why are you showing these people these houses? And she would say, these folks have a right to live wherever they want. And it just wasn't working. So we went and looked at the house that we actually ended up moving into and living in for decades. We went and looked at it, offered the asking price, and had white friends of ours go later and offer less. And they sold it to the white friends, but they were buying it for us. So we used a proxy to buy the house. Law enforcement was there as we moved into the house. And that's the way that we were able to get a house in that neighborhood in Memphis in 1969. 1969. It seems like it should be longer ago than that. My aunts and uncles had driver's licenses in 1969. There was color TV in 1969. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, John F. Kennedy, and Bobby Kennedy had all been killed by 1969. 
By 1969, the Fair Housing Act had already passed and supposedly made redlining, which is the practice of identifying mostly black neighborhoods as risky investments for banks, illegal. But the passage of one law, even a federal law, maybe even especially a federal law, is not enough to undo centuries of systems purposefully built for the financial advantage of white Americans over black Americans. Because the problem isn't just in the inability to buy land, it's also the institutions that handle our money in the first place. It's in all of our financial systems and has been dating back to 1865, all the way back to the creation of something called the Freedmen's Saving and Trust Company, a bank that was supposed to provide savings and financial services for newly freed slaves and the money they were acquiring through their aggressive work post-emancipation. But things went incredibly wrong. Yeah, so the Freeman Savings Bank is, look, instead of land, instead of the 40 acres, we're going to give you a savings account. So it's the only thing that survives uh, Andrew Johnson's veto of the Freedmen's Bureau bill. So they allow for people who have a small amount of savings and a job to create equity. That's how a home mortgage creates wealth. That's how... It's always been done in America. This bank was not that kind of bank. It was just a commercial bank. We'll hold your money. You can save up yourself without a loan to buy a house. And that was a promise instead of the actual land, which they were owed. And even that promise becomes a point of fraud. And the white manager, uh, his name is Henry Cook, his brother's Jay Cook, infamous railroad speculator, takes this money and, quote unquote, invests it in railroad bonds and loses it. So half of the deposits were just gone, poof, um, disappeared. There was no FDIC insurance. And the bank had advertised itself under the auspices of the flag and the, you know, Lincoln's face and all of the emblems of the U.S. were on their bills and notes. And it looked to be protected by the Treasury or at least linked with Treasury, but it wasn't. The money was not protected by the full faith and credit of the government. It was just gone. And so this creates this complete distrust by the community toward the federal government and toward banking in general, a distrust that lasts a long, long time. So mm. it was devastating. This also speaks so much to the idea that you touched on at the beginning that capitalism is not, in fact, this kind of like, it's just innocent force that just does what it does and everyone's got a shot. And if we all try, then everyone, you know, and if you haven't made success because you haven't tried, what we're seeing is a capitalism or an economic system that specifically and actively disadvantages people, literally steals their money after making it impossible for them to earn the money to begin with, this mistrust of banks also sets up a rise in black banks, which we really see during the heyday of the Great Migration. And the idea of black banks is seductive, and they've seen a lot of support. I guess before we get into maybe how they have or haven't worked economically, what role have they played symbolically, at least, for civil rights leaders and now with the Black Lives Matter movement? Can you talk a little bit about where that is right now? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, black banks have had a lot of roles. And, you know, for the black community, they have always been a place of organization, of protest, boycott, uh, refuge. They've always been and still are places that do not exploit the communities that they serve. There are places where um, people like, you know, Killer Mike, but back to, you know, Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey and Martin Luther King and W. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington and Carter Woodson. And you can go back in time and lots of black leaders, almost everyone that I have encountered has been a proponent of black banks. And part of it is, look, white institutions were literally stealing money from blacks or mistreating their black customers or, or, or just outright rejecting them. Most of the black banks from, I want to say, 1880s until uh, the Great Depression were linked with either, you know, society group or mutual aid society. You know, the thing that I kind of hit on and uh, criticize in the book is not that use of black banks. It is the use by the white power structure of black banks as a cynical way to undercut the movement's demands for justice. So Mm. it's one thing for MLK to say, hey, we're doing a bank in movement. We're boycotting the banks to make a statement. It's another thing for President Nixon to say, look, we're not going to do anything you guys do black banking and black capitalism as the sort of response to demands for justice. That That is the place where I think it gets to be used very cynically, is black justice groups in the civil rights movement, MLK on one side, you know, black power on the other, but both centered on, you know, there has to be economic justice for hundreds of years of exploitation. This is my first time ever hearing about that particular move by the Nixon administration. Tell us, for those of us who are hearing that for the first time, what that is about, what happens there. Yeah, so he creates the OMBE, which is Office of Minority Business Enterprise. He creates affirmative action, right, But which was more meaningful at the time. Like, businesses are going to, you know give a certain amount of employee slots or loans or whatever to black communities. And those things were obviously like outlawed by the Supreme Court later as like, quote unquote, reverse discrimination and like the the, the most cynical thing ever to happen. But really, you have two different movements happening in the late 60s. You have the push for integration. So SNCC, People like George Romney, the Kerner Commission, the Johnson administration, Robert Kennedy are saying, look, we've had housing discrimination, redlining, and credit discrimination for all of this time and created what they call at the time a black ghetto and a white suburb. So this is the black separatists, the black power movement, the black nationalists. And this is the other legitimate response is to say, look, we're basically a colony. Uh, in a nation. And when you have a colonial fight for freedom, you get land and you get sovereignty. So we want to control the the power structures. And Nixon wanted to shut down both without doing either. So he couldn't do integration because he lied in bed with the Southern racists and he was elected basically on the premise that he would not push integration. So uh, what he does is co-opt the language of the black power movement. So you have advertisements by President Nixon saying, yes, black power. I 100% support black power. And what I mean by that is black business and black capitalism. And what he meant is, look, you keep your black ghetto um, where there's no integration, you will get no capital, but black businesses are the answer. It is still the infrastructure that the U.S. has used to 
address or redress centuries of exploitation. So you have Trump's and, and Obama's signature plans for black communities as, you know, things like opportunity zones or enterprise zones or CDFIs. And that all came from Nixon's black capitalism. We don't call it black capitalism, but we call it, you know, community enterprise and community capitalism. And it has not been enough and it was never designed to be meaningful. The black communities didn't create this. This was created by white policymakers and white policymakers have to fix it. Well, that raises the, the obvious question. And, you know, when we talk about the limitations or possibilities of black capitalism, it does often strike me that the idea of that if we gain enough money, we can gain political power is so intricately tied to the idea of capitalism being a place of individual merit and not a place of systemic change. And I want to hear you talk about what you think is enough, what you think should happen to address this lengthy history of economic um, violence and oppression. You have to have capital. Take any moment in history where the white power structure created wealth in white communities and took it from black communities or didn't even have to take it, you know, if we're talking about the New Deal, just funnel it away into white communities. Go back to that moment and do that same thing, now funnel it toward black communities. The Homestead Act, where white white people got land. You know, the, the Civil War, right? Where we went back to sharecropping instead of getting 40 acres. So take any moment and go back to the solutions on offer that were mm-hmm. not done and, and do that. So it looks like reparations. It looks like capital. It looks like loans. It looks like just a complete elimination of the racial wealth gap. But I want the creativity to not be from black businessmen and black communities. This is uh, you know, something for the Fed and the Treasury and Congress and the agencies to fix because they're the ones that created it. So in some sense, you're arguing that there, there simply can't be enough Beyonce's, Oprah's, Jay-Z's, whomever in the world for black people to create our own wealth on the massive scale enough to effectively change the system and that that solution must come from federal sources from the government from the larger the largest holder of systems and money um is that correct is that i mean yes that's correct i mean it doesn't make sense to look at just you know beyonce or lebron or whatever i mean Wealth is, you know, you look at means, you look at medians, you don't look at like five people at the top, right? Even if we were to, if you take a list of 2,000 billionaires in the world, they're mostly white, right? So we don't look at wealth that way. We look at the majority of people and you have a third of black people in America have zero to negative wealth. You have a massive home ownership gap. You have massive student lending gaps. Average people are not billionaires, white or black. So even if you're a black doctor versus a white doctor- The wealth gap is massive, and it gets higher, actually, the gap between white and black at the higher you go in income. So there isn't – it's not a, a matter of personal responsibility and personal savings. Wealth is – it's a generational phenomenon. You pass it down. Uh, it's sticky, right? So I would imagine that a lot of people's <laughs> dis- discomfort upon hearing that, the what you've just laid out, 
has something <laughs> you're like and <laughs> um, yeah. I, I would imagine that a lot of that discomfort has to do with probably a, something that I encounter quite a bit when I talk individually with white people that I know which is people are about equality and everything being fair and man this is so terrible this needs to stop right up until the moment it seems like they might have to lose something in order for it to stop that's when everyone's like well can't we figure out another way and it seems to me that inherent in this idea is the feeling that white people are going to have to lose something. Is that true? No, white people don't have to lose anything. First of all, I am sick of creating policy to not anger white people. Mm. I mean, that is, that is where we've been. <laughs> the New Deal did not take from anybody to create wealth in white communities. It just was a, a matter of wealth creation. When the Fed over coronavirus weekend, created four trillions of dollars of funds and stuck it in repo. Who did that take from? When we send, you know, billions of dollars every year to the military to create tankers and whatever, where is that coming from? The way that the government spends money is not like the way a household spends money. This is like the biggest myth of neoliberalism, capitalism. The government can just fix it. And it doesn't have to come from anyone's pocket. I'm not saying there's like this free lunch. Like the thing that you will lose if you're a white person listening to this is not money. Nothing is coming out of your bank account. The thing that you will lose are the wages of whiteness. It is the equity in your home derived from whiteness. It is the way that the opportunity hoarding that, you know, you do for your children and the, and the way that keeping black people in a different community and segregated into a different school benefits you. You will lose that. Mm. But it is not a transfer where you're paying something uh, to someone else. That is not that is not what anyone is proposing here. Why do you think people resist this? I think that is a libertarian myth that was created at a point in time to justify certain things. It is a false myth. And you see the myth blow up when we talk about things like defense spending or Federal Reserve monetary policy. It's a myth that is ragged and it's like the holes are showing, but people still come back to this. Oh, well, I got here because of my hard work. It's like a meritocracy kind of myth. And I think that people resist when you say, you know, history matters and you, you didn't earn what you have. I mean, you did, right? Like everyone can point to, like I can point to like all the hard work I've done and all the sacrifices I've made and those times where I saved money. But what I can't easily do is all the privileges I was given or to think through like what I didn't have to go through, right? I think it does come down to education and breaking some of these spells that were purposefully put on Americans. Chances are if you are an American, you've been told your whole life that free market capitalism just works. From the first time you learn about lemonade stands, to the time you sell candy bars for a class trip, to when you start hearing that if you just go to college and get a good job, you'll secure a future for yourself and your family. It's an incantation that has been whispered at us for as long as we can remember. If we work hard, save up enough money, we can have the American dream. A nice house that accrues in value. A place for your kids to call home. But for most Black Americans, that dream is always on layaway. How can we expect to magically succeed when the very economic system which we are expected to enter as so-called equals 
is predicated on our continual disadvantage. Here in Oakland, it has reached a point where just wanting to stay put, just live where you and your family have grown for generations, is just as hard as it was for Jeffrey's family to move into that all-white neighborhood in Memphis. It's time to break the spell. And I'm beginning to see the facade cracking. In November of 2019, here in Oakland, a group of black moms facing homelessness occupied a vacant and unused home to give their kids a roof over their head. They called themselves Moms for Housing, and after weeks of protest, they got to keep the home, buying it with help from Community Land Trust. Their action galvanized thousands of other people who were facing the same impossible circumstances as they were, and it sparked a movement by asking a very simple question. Is housing a commodity or is it a human right? We know what America's answer is. What is yours? In the next episode, we'll look at the pernicious epidemic of maternal mortality among black birthing folks in America and why the gap between black and white mothers is so high and what black doulas and doctors are doing to change that. You want a person who sees you and your children in the future, right? Who wants you to hear, who imagines them being the president or curing cancer. And so that means they're going to fight for you. I'm your host, Carvel Wallace, and this is who we are. For more information on the topics and ideas explored in this episode, go to our show notes and our show page. The production team at Cosmic Standard is our senior editor, Cher Vincent, our senior producer, Ajwa Jemma Brempong, our managing producer is Elise Bergerson, our associate producer and researcher is Najib Amini, our technical director is Jacob Winnick, our showrunner is Eliza Smith, our theme music is by Marcus Hunt. From the Who We Are Project, we have executive producer Jeffrey Robinson, and from Vox Creative, we have Director of Creative Strategy, Amber Davis. Senior Creative Producer, Anu Sebramanian. Branded Audio Coordinator, Taylor Henry. And Vice President of Content Production, Kiana Moore. I'm Carvel Wallace, and this is Who We Are. <laughs>